0: Hi, welcome to Read Weird. A podcast where two tired people talk about reading and writing
1: strange and experimental fiction. (laughs) Oh, that's so accurate. (laughs) I'm Carly, who's very tired.
0: I'm Lindsay, who's halfway through coffee. And this
1: is our podcast. (laughs) This is one hell of a podcast. We're real low level today. (laughs) Although I did have enough sugar that uh, I may get high level in a few minutes, so we'll see how okay, that Okay,
0: if she starts talking like a helium balloon, you'll know why.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. My heart's just gonna explode in my chest. Well,
0: now I need to be a video podcast.
1: Ugh, no thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that <doesn't> entails showering.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure does. <laughs> Not gonna do that. Oh man, so what weird stuff has been going on with you? Oh, this
0: is a really special Special weird thing I'd like to show share with you. Are you done eating, by I the can. way?
1: Yes. Right, good.
0: Yes. <laughs> okay. So, um, this is a special headline that happened this week in Oregon. Slime eels cause pileup on Oregon highway. A truck overturned, <laughs> spilling nearly four tons of slime eels on Oregon Coast Highway, and it is disgusting. It is, like, picture your worst nightmare, and that is what this is, and it's even worse because when slime eels, also known as hagfish, become stressed, they secrete a slime, which covered the road and cars involved.
1: (laughs) I love hagfish, first of all. They're horrifying. (laughs) so scary. So was there... Because I saw this headline, but it wasn't clear to me because I didn't read into the article... Were there people in, like, was there someone in that car that got covered in slime?
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh there my God. sure was.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, that is my worst yep. nightmare. Okay,
0: so, so to read from this, this is from KGW8 News. The truck was carrying 7,500 pounds of slime eels, and the transfer weight caused one of the containers to come off the truck bed and fly across the highway. The other containers then separated from the bed and spilled onto the highway. The flatbed came completely separated from the frame of the truck. The container that flew across the highway caused a chain reaction crash, pushing four southbound vehicles into each other. So, yes. Oh people, people, cars, everything were just covered in, like, yes. scared slimefish slime. Fish slime. Oh my god. <laughs> also, who needs that many pounds of hagfish? They were getting shipped to Korea for consumption. For
1: for to eat? For,
0: for to eating.
1: <laughs> I was not aware that people ate hagfish. Yeah.
0: 7,500 pounds of hagfish.
1: Oh, no. No, thank anyway, you. Anyway, these
0: things look like they belong in a horror novel.
1: They do. They really do. They are... I think I've seen, like, deep sea documentaries where they're, like consuming, you know, deadfall in the ocean. And they're, they are like H.R. Geiger level nightmares. (laughs) They're so scary. Oh yeah. yeah. And the idea that they, ugh, no thank you. It's
0: just like Deep Sea Jumanji.
1: (laughs) That's, oh god, I wish we titled episodes that way. That would be the episode title.
0: Inside you're just getting seven. Meh. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so that's my weird thing I had to share with you all. Go look at pictures. This thing is horrific.
1: Crikey O'Reilly. Oh, man.
0: <laughs> so what's what's weird with you?
1: That's a great way of putting it. Um <laughs> not that much, but I have a little weird thing. So as as you know, my hair is pink, so it's color treated. And it's kind of been it's getting a lot of damage so I've been trying to like baby it and putting coconut oil or almond oil in it sometimes at night to try and just kind of give it some, some more moisture which works fairly well this is our beauty podcast now <laughs> a segment of weird beauty so you know that's fine I've done that before but I guess I haven't done it since we adopted these new oh, cats no. <laughs> so Constance apparently I woke up one morning after putting almond oil in my hair, and Constance was standing on my pillow, like, licking and nibbling my hair, (laughs) and I just, now I know what will happen when I die and they eat me.
0: (laughs) I mean, this is great, though, because you're guaranteeing that they will be fed, in your outfit. yeah,
1: it's perfect, yeah, it's very thoughtful of me. It's like an Amelia Gray story, <laughs> <laughs> but it just I just had this really like I mean first of all, that sensation of someone that you can't see like just gently tugging on your little hair oh, is weird. very creepy, so uncomfortable by that. I know, I know. Really, like it tickles, and it's sort of sweet that she's doing that, but it's also super creepy. Um, but I also just like had this flash where I was like, "So this is what it's gonna be like when I'm dead, except I won't be feeling anything." <laughs> Oh, no. Because, I I mean, clearly I just assume that I will die alone in a house with a cat. No, I <laughs> There's think, no I think about
0: that a lot. And, like, when my cat licks my face, I'm like, well, at least she's getting a taste for it early. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, should we talk about our thing yeah, now? Yeah, let's
0: talk about our thing today.
1: All right, let's do it.
0: So, today we are talking about an essay that is very near and dear to both of our hearts. It is... Uh, fairy tale is form form is fairy tale by kate bernheimer
1: kate bernheimer has been called one of the living masters of the fairy tale by tin house she is the author of a novel trilogy and the story collections horse flower bird and how a mother weaned her girl from fairy tales and the editor of four anthologies i'll say four wonderful anthologies, including the World Fantasy Award winning and best-selling My Mother She Killed Me, My Father He Ate Me, 40 New Fairy Tales, and XO Orpheus, 50 New Myths. She is an associate professor of English at the University of Arizona in Tucson, where she teaches fairy tales and creative writing. She also once gave me life advice at AWP, so uh, that was fun. <laughs> I am forever in her debt. <laughs> and yeah,
0: she's, we we reminded her, actually, most recent AWP of her life advice giving to you.
1: <laughs> I don't remember exactly how she put it, but she was like, "Oh, was yeah, it? Did it help? Helpful? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was." I was like, sort of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it did. It was just nice to, yeah. to. I think really the 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 value of it at that time and and still is that I'm very impressed to see someone who is making a life. It seems on this intersection of, of fairy tale and and literature and and doing kind of. I hadn't really seen someone do that at that time, in the way that she was doing. And so it was really, that meant meant a lot and continues to mean a lot to me.
0: Yeah. Also, she's just brilliant. So there's that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As we'll see. (laughs) And is responsible for Fairytale Review. Yeah. Like all these things. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Which Carly's had a story in. It's true. And I made her sign my copy of it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's not embarrassing at all. (laughs)
0: Get used to it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I love Fairytale Review. It's great. Just... I can die now and then be eaten by my cats.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. All right. So I've had really great success teaching this essay, which is one of the reasons that I have wanted to talk about it is in the creative writing classroom. I think students, especially when they're in their very early writing stages can kind of feel like, anything you tell them is either like prescriptive or subjective. Like they feel like there's not Mm -hmm. necessarily like a lot of reason for like why something needs to be different. And so one of the reasons I think I've had a lot of success with Kate Bernheimer's essay, even though it can feel kind of like theoretical at times, especially for emerging writers is that it gives them a little bit of a roadmap. Um, so one mm-hmm. of the things that she, she's doing in this essay is kind of breaking down key features of fairy tales that appear in many genres, in all genres actually, like across genre, and we just don't recognize that these features are coming from fairy tale.
1: I think this essay is really helpful for that reason and because it's really thinking about technique and technique in a tradition. I think uh, one of the things that I really admire about this essay is the way that she's talking about fairy tales as a classical tradition. And and then being able to say, like, look, these are techniques that exist here and here and here, and it doesn't matter whether it's postmodern or realist or Dada or whatever. These are tools or techniques that all kinds of writers use, and the way that she's sort of using this as a, an argument to kind of break down the genre barriers feels really helpful both just to me and as someone who's interested in writing this kind of work, but also I think Lindsay, to your point for a beginning writer to kind of undo a little bit of that entrenched skepticism about genre or sort of commonly held belief that like, you know, one kind of literature is more serious than another kind.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's one of the things that she is doing in this essay is Kind of pinpointing like certain writers in schools, and we see we this kind of thing in our own writing all the time
1: yeah and and oftentimes without sort of thinking about it, like I feel like there's a lot in this essay that enumerates tools or techniques that I was using mm-hmm. with, unconsciously without realizing that that's what I was doing, and as she sort of puts it, without realizing that that was the tradition in which I was writing, and I think so it's really it was really helpful for me to sort of formalize that element as well.
0: Oh yeah, I think especially like what we see a lot is like the normalized magic or the intuitive logic. So when she's talking about normalized magic, it's like a magic that exists without having to be explained. So something just is. You just like present it as like, here's this magic thing that is happening. And we've talked about this before when we talked about things in the podcast, like Amelia Gray or like Rob saying, I'm a knife. Where this thing has just said this is, this is how the world is, and it's like okay, this is normal. We're not trying to explain why something magical or like unusual mm-hmm. is happening.
1: Yeah, and it really, when I think about stories, I mean there there are definitely stories that I enjoy that like react to magic as you or I would where we go what the fuck like <laughs> you know um, but I think a lot of times the stories that are most successful are the ones that accept what's happening and don't belabor it and and I think that that's part of it is that there's this sort of as Bernheimer says the natural world is the magical world the day to day is collapsed with the wondrous and I feel like that's mm-hmm. really um, key to my my aesthetic i guess for like what i like in stories i think that that's very important and it's it's also a really hard thing to achieve because we're so yeah. used to uh, realist conventions i think
0: yeah i think and especially again i think this is where it's really a helpful essay for emerging writers because they can kind of take especially that normalized magic and uh, if they want to write something that's strange or like the intuitive logic which is that, you know, a story, a fairy tale, or I think really any story that's weird is driven by its own logic. So in reading this essay, I think students can come to the understanding that they can dispense with the need to explain. Mm -hmm. And like that, and I think you're right that some stories are successful when they have kind of like the character who's like a stand-in for the reader of like, whoa, this is crazy. But most of the time, like, I'm bored by that yeah you know I just I just want you to just give it to me straight up and I think this essay can help to show writers like that that's an okay thing to do
1: yeah yeah I agree and I think this is something that I I really struggle with a lot because I find myself I'll find myself sort of writing a story and feel like I'm kind of justifying elements of it to to this imaginary reader who like doesn't buy into or doesn't you know suspend disbelief and, and I don't want to do that I want to like cut off that impulse to try and explain myself or the story in that way and one of the things that Bernheimer talks about is uh, I'll just quote her you can call this suspension of disbelief if you want but I prefer the idea that fairy tales require no suspension on the part of the reader they are already suspended expanded and raptured with normalized magic and that's the thing that like makes me throw my hands up in the air and go yes yeah, that's the thing <laughs> But I really what I would really love to see is a is an exploration of like how that's accomplished I really like I think Bernheimer is doing a lot to like explain what that feels like you know Mm -hmm. um and I totally you know reading through for instance the story that she uses as an example the rosebud I completely see it there like I I, when you say normalized magic and get the definition I understand what it means but like how to accomplish that and, like, set the tone for that mm. and how to, really for for all of these, how to sort of accomplish, for instance, intuitive logic in a way that, mm-hmm. that does resist the expectation successfully that this is connected and, and that it, it makes sense uh, in that sort of nonsense way. If it's such a hard sort of balance to strike, I think, particularly when you're, amongst an audience of of realist readers as Mm -hmm. we we've talked about before i feel like a lot of times i I, i'm always kind of at the back of my head aware that there's there's going to be people who don't buy into what's happening um you know you're always kind of fighting against that expectation and so i think one thing is that i really admire the way that bernheimer is talking about fairy tales ability to violate those rules right to to break those conventions um but i also wonder like from a craft standpoint, I would love to see more examples of how this is accomplished on the page.
0: So one thing that I was thinking about in like this essay is probably like the thing like propping up like like the thing that I'll be known for on my deathbed or something. <laughs> which is, so like Carly's thing that she's going to be known for is like put
1: it in the body. Which I saw from <laughs> like someone. It's not mine. <laughs>
0: yeah, but it is yours now. But it is. <laughs> And, and you also have a couple other things, too. But you've got, like, your three things. But mine is mine is the importance of a declarative first sentence. Mm-hmm. And, like, that can be a little limiting because you have to think about, like, structure. And you don't want to always just say, like, this is, you know, a woman who has no feet or whatever. Like, you, you need to be a little more, like, creative than that in terms of how your first sentence is read. Um, but, like, this essay, I think, was really the, the prop for my, like number 1 like this is when weird fiction is working is when we get a declarative first sentence and like i will come back to this the story babies by amelia gray like every single day for the rest of my life which is <laughs> I don't remember the first line but it is like this declarative sentence that just builds the whole world and it broaches no argument. And I think that's what she's talking about in, in Bernheimer's essay when she's talking about like intuitive logic or normalized magic and how it kind of brokes no argument mm-hmm. or but how, yeah. It's the first sentence in The Rosebud is there once was, or there was once a poor woman who had two little girls and she talks about how the there was once is letting you know that you're in a fairy tale it's like the once mm-hmm. upon a time that kind of rhythm so obviously this first sentence in the rosebud is not a strange sentence it's there's a poor woman who had two little girls it's pretty normal like we're, there's nothing that's a departure from realism but it's the there was once mm-hmm. uh, you know the the kind of rhythm of, of that and you know i think weird fiction takes it farther than that in terms of that first sentence like sets the tone for something that's not normal happening Um, but that is my like this is how you do it
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I think so I think you're right and I think it's also as she talks about when she talks about intuitive logic she's really talking about the the function of syntax and the sort of poetry of language, and I'm trying to find the quotation, but she sort of says you know, like, other things that happen have no relevance apart from the effect of language. Things are syntactically close to each other, but don't necessarily have any they' they're just what is it she calls it narrative proximity right so like mm-hmm. things are right next to each other um and that and that's sort of why they happen again that just soness of things mm-hmm. and I think that that's something that's really valuable in thinking about how how these effects are achieved is that it is a lot about, what the order of the words is that you put on the page. And uh, as she puts it earlier in the essay, the pleasure of language as it shapes the story. This idea that, that the syntax and the movement through a sentence really is what is moving me into that state of, of elevated, super real fairy tale world. It moves me into the wondrous. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's very much, I mean, in some ways you could say that's also about tone, right? Like that's a, that's a discussion about how you're achieving a tone. And I think this is, that seems part and parcel to me of, of how the fairy tale kind of, what's the word like register, I guess the fairy tale register is, is accomplished.
0: Yeah. And I I think that is one of the things like you were talking about, like, well, how do you actually do that? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think tone is a harder question to answer than like syntax because we can, break apart, you know, the syntax of a variety of stories and, like, first lines or opening paragraphs or whatever and see, like, how syntactically that's building a bridge from, like, your normal world as the reader, you know, into this actual, you know, this world that you're entering. Mm-hmm. But t- tone is tone is a hard thing for me to pin down, personally.
1: Yeah, it is, but I think it, it's... It feels related to me, and I think when I look at the Rosebud... Um, the story that Bernheimer uses, the tone is is there, and I think it's an effect of all these four things that Bernheimer is talking about, right? That the 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 language is a little bit flat or abstract. It's not using concrete details, right? So this is, uh, abstractness is is one of the things that she talks about that it's not. You know, there's very little explanation of like why the children are beautiful, um, just that they are beautiful. Even you know, there once there was once is mm-hmm. is contributing to that tone. And I think it it kind of yeah, it is it is very hard to pin down what tone means exactly. But I think it I think all of these things are I mean, they're alchemical, right? Like it's this kind of combination of factors that you're adjusting the levels on to get this sort of magical mythical third heat sort of (laughs) feeling this like perfect sensation this feeling of, of being in the wondrous yeah
0: yeah
1: and I think it's also I mean this is a story where like nothing explicitly unreal really happens in the rosebud I mean he vanishes the little boy vanishes but like you know if you were a very stubborn reader you could just say he like ducked out of sight you know it's not yeah. it's not like a talking bear or um, a flying carpet or something it's pretty grounded but it feels magical and even though as Bernheimer talks about there's no real strong evidence that the the boy the flower that the boy gives her is related to her death mm-hmm. it's, it's there in the connection between those sentences and because it, this feels like a magical world even if the fairy tale is not explicitly like a wonder tale.
0: Yeah, and like you were saying, it's the proximity of of that information, the way that that's given. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the importance of that intuitive logic, which she says is sort of nonsensical sense, which I just love Mm -hmm. that. And she goes on to say that the language of a traditional fairy tale tells us that first this happened and then that happened, there's never an explanation of why. In fact, the question why does not often arise. Mm-hmm. And I I love I love that idea. And I think that's where, like, syntax and proximity are so key. Because if you have like a declarative sentence, it, you know that you it, things have to unfold in this certain way. And then if you've got another sentence that's like following, well, there's like the causal connection between. One sentence and the next, mm-hmm. like you're you're trapped into. You have to believe this story. Yeah, that it, you know, that the boy did actually vanish.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's also an element of of authority in fairy tale narrators, and and also the fact that it strikes me now that they are pretty much always third person. You know, it's a, as mm-hmm. as a genre, it's almost always third person narration. There are some exceptions, or like you know, it's not always that way. But um, I feel like the third person and usually past tense of it enforces that too. Is that a subjective like I did this or I did that creates a lot more room for doubt. Um, but yeah. to have to have a third person telling you this thing is what happened really does endorse the credibility of what's happening in a sort of surprisingly effective way I think
0: yeah no, I think that's totally true it carries like the weight of history or whatever
1: yeah I'm always really interested in how that like just trust me comes about like you know <laughs> how do I how do I earn the kind of buy-in I guess how do I earn buy-in from a reader and I think that's one thing that fairy tales do really effectively but as Bernheimer also says, imagine submitting a work, a story like this to a workshop where the question like why would come up all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's one of our, our main sort of pushes is to understand what a character's motivation is and how the relationship between two scenes is working. And like, why does this come after that? And in some ways I feel like unless you're in a workshop run by a fairy tale oriented person, the goals of sort of a conventional realist workshop are sometimes at odds with the project of stories like this and many other kinds of stories too i think there's a lot of kinds of writing that get pushed in a different direction in a workshop if it's not carefully kind of tailored to that kind of writing
0: yeah like the the person leading the workshop has to be interested in buying into
1: a project
0: that's i guess like rooted in fairy tale
1: yeah yeah, yeah or at least at least open to reading it with a different set of values and expectations,
0: yeah,
1: although I think as Bernheimer's saying, it's not so much that there's a different set of expectations, it's that you have to recognize that all kinds of literature are using these in different levels, yeah, but there's there's a lot of kind of prejudice of like, well, this is just a fairy tale,
0: yeah, like when these things all come together for some reason,, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah especially I think especially what gets a lot of pushback are flatness and abstraction like we've talked a lot about the latter two that she notes which are intuitive logic and and magic and I think we are normalized magic I think we see those in like we can point to examples of where that's happening like you know with Amelia Gray or like normalized magic I mean that's Harry Potter you know you're buying into that world like that's it just is But flatness and abstraction, those are two words that have a very negative connotation in the workshop Mm -hmm. environment, especially. Mm -hmm. So I think that another reason this is an important essay is it's showing like, well, here are the ways that flatness and abstraction actually might be useful tools Mm -hmm. rather than points of criticism.
1: Yeah. And also that they can be not just useful, but sort of radical. And again, I, I think that that is something that appeals to me about this story is the way that Bernheimer is looking at these these different techniques as violations of convention or, of, you mm-hmm. know, of rules that, you know, that we need to be looking at these not as just sort of accidents yeah. or, or unintended effects, that they really are levels that you can be intentionally adjusting in a story um, and that have a, a really clear effect on the reader. And that's something that... That, again, in a workshop, people often just kind of go, oh, well, you just didn't do the work of rendering the psychological realism of this character. And sometimes the answer is, well, that's just not what I was interested in.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a real mistake to assume that, you know, a person was just, like, a lazy writer or, Mm -hmm. like, not capable, rather than thinking about whether this was a conscious, like, deliberate decision that may or may not be working. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's a valid question, like is it doing the work it needs to right now but yeah i think and i think it's especially like flatness and abstraction because like when she's talking about abstraction she's talking about like saying that a person is beautiful you know that's like well you're not saying like what beauty is you're just saying the word beautiful yeah that can be like so useful yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah, it really depends. And I think this is what it comes down to for me is what one of our instructors in grad school would call taking a story in its own terms. Yeah. And really understanding, you know, what is the story trying to do? Uh, and if you can't, I mean, sometimes if, if the writing is not great yet, it's hard to tell. But uh, oftentimes yeah. you can sort of see is this person trying to leverage abstraction? Um, and are there ways to sort of tell them to do it more effectively rather than to get them to do something the way that you want them to do or the way that you would do it if you were writing the story. And I think that's the common sort of challenge in workshop is that it's seen as kind of a like a there's only one value to it, you know, Um, and, and not that there are multiple ways of solving a problem.
0: Yeah, I think if you can learn to take a story on its own terms, and, like, of course, there's, you're always going to have, like, a reader bias in the things that you're drawn to and are interested in, but if you can learn, like, what are the conventions of, like, a genre that you don't read a lot of, so if you don't read a lot of, like, I don't know, narrative nonfiction, or like sci-fi or whatever, if you can learn what those conventions are, I think that's really helpful as like a workshop leader. Mm-hmm. You know, because then you're you can pinpoint like, well, here's where you're actually leveraging the strategies of this genre and here's where, you know, maybe you're trying to have like characters that are you know, psychologically fleshed out but maybe need to be a little flatter you know, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that especially like leading a workshop, uh, if you can kind of like figure that out for yourself and kind of pass that on to your students, it can make the workshop a much friendlier environment and an environment where people are willing to take more risks, especially in terms of writing stranger Mm -hmm. stories.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I will say I've been in workshops where the person leading it had openly sort of only knew how to talk about realist fiction and kind of was, I think a lot of people have been in this position, was disparaging of other kinds of writing and that's definitely been in the, the minority for me in terms of experience in workshop but I've, I've been in situations where like the I mean that just feels irresponsible to me for an instructor like you have to recognize that your students are going to want to write sci-fi or going to want to write you know Absurdism, police procedural. Yeah. <laughs> procedural, and so rather than, and I think this is the common sort of move that instructors make, is to outlaw certain kinds of fiction in the classroom. I think rather than limiting what students can write, you have to be looking at uh, what are the universal tools that we can, as Bernheimer is talking about, uh, explore the way that they are being deployed in greater or lesser effect. Um, say, well you know, sci-fi tends to use these things more and focus less on these things. Mm-hmm. And that that seems to me to be much more productive than just saying, well, you can't write this sort of story for me because I don't know how to talk about it.
0: Yeah. And also like it it prevents students from being the like, I don't like it. Like mm-hmm. it's just weird. It's like, no, you're kind of all in this process of discovering the conventions together. And it just I just think it makes it so much more fun because people are actually writing what they're interested in. And also it's educational, so <laughs> yay. Yeah. <laughs> yay learning.
1: Yay learning.
0: <laughs> so I think you did this too, and I also did this when I was teaching intro creative writing, is to structure a course around like certain elements of writing that are universal or that we mm. consider at this moment to be kind of more universal. So, I mean, you can break this down into like, the real fundamentals. If you want to talk like tense and point of view and things like that, but you can also I think there's also room to talk about like well what is sci-fi like we we're just saying as a genre, what is fairy tale as a genre, and you you can break these genres down into their kind of constituent parts, um, and I think that is a useful way of bringing in people with kind of these various interests and also giving them like tools and language to maybe understand the genre that they're working in.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so for sure. And I think that's a way, as you said, it's a way of sort of moving away from like tense or third person point of view. Like these are definitely abstractness and flatness are, are techniques in the same way. But I think they're things that writers don't think about as much as something like point of view.
0: Right, so I think it's very worth kind of bringing... Like, you might still need to start at, you know, point of view and provide everyone with kind of that common language, but it might be worth, like, later on in the semester, bringing in Bernheimer's essay and bringing in these ideas of, like, what are what are functions of different genres. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things that I I would also like to talk about in this story is Bernheimer says something like, one of the effects of a fairy tale is that you're... Aware of being in a story that you know, yeah. And it's it's when she's talking about the there once was, I think, and sort of saying like fairy tale announces itself as a form. It drops you right in, and you already know what kind of story you're in. um And I think that's something that's really interesting to me as a tool and a sort of signal to the reader, a way of sort of giving you the the cue about what you're going to expect. And I think the declarative sentence is related to that. I think abstraction is related to that. Uh, Certainly all, you know, all these things are related to that, but it's really interesting to me as a, like as an intro into a, a world, but I'm also interested in the way that Bernheimer is talking about, this is really hard for me to articulate for some reason. She, she describes it as sort of like an awareness that you're in a story.
0: Yeah. I think actually, I think that was, Earlier, like the art of being, or like being in a, reading a fairy tale is a fairy tale in and of itself because you're in the story. It somehow she says that.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, okay, it's on page 65 I found it finally yeah it's when she's talking about language a little bit uh, reading, the, reading fairy tales reading them often provides an uneasy sensation a gnawing familiarity that comforting yet supernatural awareness of living inside a story readers of fairy tale collections like readers of well books know through these techniques that they are inside of stories lost or imagined or invented in there and that to me feels really blow well, off the back of my head profound <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, it's something that, like, yeah, I think that is sort of the effect of of reading a fairy tale. Is this? I mean, you can kind of think. Often we talk about escaping into this fairy tale realm, right? And and I think that's something that anyone who appreciates a fairy tale will understand. Is is that desire to live in a story? But it also, to me, and I think because they are so abstract and so very much about. Story, as she says previously in that paragraph, they're skeletons of stories in some way. The pleasure of them is very much about the pleasure of constructing a story and watching this really pure condensation of a story unfold. And so, yeah, it it does feel like a very concentrated kind of reading experience. And I feel the same way about, like, actually when I'm reading your stories, like flash fiction, um... Mm-hmm. And someone we're going to talk about next time, Daniil Carms Like, there's, there's just something really boiled down to this essential, delightful kind of mechanism. It's something I really appreciate in fairy tales as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I agree too that my experience of reading that section you just read aloud, that quote, was also that I feel that same way in reading flash fiction that we're mm-hmm. kind of stripped down to the like the bare essentials. But also I do think it just applies to reading weird fiction in general. It can be like that experience of reading something where it is so strange, like duplex. And yet you, like, you're like you reading it and you're so drawn in and you look up and you're like not sure what world you're in anymore. <laughs> it's kind of that, like, that feeling that I think fairy tale gives you and I think weird fiction gives you.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think this is also, and I don't want to like, I don't want to sound like a snob about this, but I've, I've been talking about book clubs a lot recently, and and sort of the challenges of those, but also the pleasures of them. But I, one of the challenges I think is that I often want to discuss literature in the way that a fiction workshop would, which is from a craft yeah. standpoint, from standpoint of how is the story constructed or how are the effects achieved. I want to talk about it technically and a lot of times when we talk about reading for pleasure or reading you know in a book club setting it's either a book that is not doing a lot formally or where everyone else just wants to talk about character and this is not to say that I don't love talking about character also um, I have plenty of books that I really love the people in it but I think a lot of times I'm much more intrigued by how the effect is achieved, or how something is constructed. And I think one of the things that Bernheimer is talking about here is is that she is similarly inclined, both as a writer and as a reader, and the fact that fairy tales, maybe because of these features that she's discussing, really invite that kind of reading also.
0: Yeah, and she has that really great sentence where, I don't remember where this is, but it's like... um what people want to talk about when they want to talk about fairy tales is they want to talk about that crazy thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And it's not about that crazy thing that happened. Like, that's great that that's what you remember and want to talk about, but let's get into how it's actually doing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of her, her points too, and this is from my folklore background, I can say this is definitely the case. Yay. (laughs) Ah, Here we go. (laughs) My deep, dark past as a folklorist is that there's a lot of research done about what the meaning of fairy tales is and, and the sort of cultural significance, literary significance. And I think particularly for the kind of like class of scholars who do kind of comparative literary analysis of of fairy tales, that's you know, it's like Bruno Bettelheim, what's the psychological significance of Red Riding Hood or whatever, which is all great. And like, I'm very... I enjoy that but I'm much more interested in like again how is this constructed or uh, how do we think about transmission between versions. I'm much more interested in like reading these stories in conversation with other stories with tradition
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and thinking about how they get constructed so I'm much more interested in that than I am in like does Little Red Riding Hood symbolize sexuality and coming into sexual awareness for a young girl like Probably yes, (laughs) but it's not the the area that I'm as excited about, I guess.
0: Yeah, put a pin in that for our next discussion, by the way. That's going to be
1: relevant. Will do. (laughs) Yes, boss. I had another probably poorly formed thought that I wanted to bring up. Bring it. So, in thinking about the title of this essay... Fairy tale is form, form is fairy tale. I think I really, I'm like completely on board and totally understand the first clause there. Fairy tale is form, right? Like, I'm like, yes, I get it. Okay, let's go. Um, mm-hmm. The second part of this, the, se- the second piece, form is fairy tale, feels much more profound in a way. Mm-hmm. And. In some way, it's the it's the side of this equation to me that Burnheimer doesn't totally, at the risk of using this much hated word, unpack mm-hmm. that. I, I and I think it's it's just a gorgeous idea, right? That all formal technique is fairy tale technique in some way, or that all kinds of formal consideration are magical in some way, mm-hmm. and that this is yeah. a this is a set of magical tools that you use to concoct a story. But it's it's interesting to me that, that I don't feel like that's something that she fully addresses in this essay.
0: Yeah, I do. I have a similar kind of feeling is I wondered about like when in her career this was written because mm. she's gone on to do I, I know that this is a bit older now but she's gone on to i mean she she does so much in terms of anthologizing and the fairy tale review and is like so present in this field that i think you, you know you were saying earlier is kind of becoming bigger it wasn't i mean i still feel like she's the only one i've read that's saying anything like that mm-hmm. but i kind of had a similar feeling towards like you know the end in the last paragraph was like maybe not the very last, but there's like a moment where it was, oh, on page 71, a continued underestimation of the techniques of fairy tale and their influence on hundreds of years of writing will lead to their disappearance. Also, it will lead to some wonderful books being disparaged uh, by some influential critics as difficult or or obscure or unreal-seeming. I did feel like that was kind of that moment in the paragraph where it's like you're trying to position yourself as like like, no, this is important. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it, it kind of felt like maybe she was carving out the field at that moment. Mm-hmm. So I feel, I feel like that second clause of the title is like, that was probably a scary, like, big thing to do at the time. Mm-hmm. And so better to, like, not <laughs> go there. Mm-hmm. But I would, I would love to see, because I think, I think she's onto something. I don't think she's wrong.
1: Yeah. No, I uh. don't either. I think it's a, I think that's a beautiful. Way of thinking about what form can do, and I think obviously like the the two clauses in that title have this sort of wonderful symbiosis, right? I think it's easy to sort of accept that title on its own merits, but I I do feel like there's something in here that deserves more attention, and I think yeah, I think you're totally right that unfortunately this may always be true in conversations about kind of unconventional non-realist writing fairy tale weird whatever that there's always this awareness that you're writing to an audience that is largely not of your same persuasion and so it, it feels like a lot of the work that this essay is doing is trying kind of as you were saying to like position itself as an argument for taking fairy tales seriously for sort of breaking down those barriers between genres which i think is really important I th- I think these these techniques that she's saying are really useful I- to break down barriers and and to help us think outside of genre binaries or um, outside of really discrete categories of types of writing. But it, it also feels like there's always this thing at the back of her head where she like has to prove the validity of this. Yeah. Which I mean I think is always going to be the case. You're all you're almost always going to be in a a writing workshop where this is true or the audience in a literary or academic venue is going to be mainly people who don't have a lot of experience of that. And I do think it's becoming less common that we have to justify magical realist or fairy tale or absurdist yeah. techniques. That's you know, they're a little more mainstream than they used to be perhaps, but I think that's always going to be the case that people are yeah. not going to take it seriously, sadly, but it also feels to me like, and I think this is something that you and I have talked about sometimes is that it takes up so much air in your argument, so much air in the room, um, where it's like, I want to just jump into not defining what this means or talking about why it's worth talking about, but to just say, okay, let's just assume, I mean, to basically do a just so, right? Yeah. To say, let's just talk about what, how this works.
0: Well, that's actually, I, I was going to say the same thing. That's, that's actually what this podcast in Read Weird arose out of, is that we're sick of seeing things, like, defined. You know, we, we saw, like, some panel discussions where, you know, if it's about anything that's not realist fiction, I mean, this one whole panel was eaten up with just defining. And, like, let's stop that. We mm-hmm. know what these things are, and I'm, like, bored with defining. Like, let's move on. Yeah. Let's talk about how. Let's talk about why. Like, let's not talk about what. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's a lot of value to talking about what, and I think in the way that Bernheimer is is doing it, which is to say, like the the what is not as clear cut as you think it is. Um, yeah. That that I think is really helpful. And there, I mean, there are still people in every conversation about fabulism or about uh, magical realism or about absurd, like whatever, uh, any kind of weird writing who don't know what it is and are gonna need yeah. that primer. But like. Also, they can, they can explain, you know, they can research that for themselves. They can yeah, I
0: mean, that's exactly the same thing as, like, the current political moment we're in, though. It's <laughs> yeah. like, I don't need to explain to you, like, how I'm affected by, like, men being sexist every single day. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, <laughs> I, I, and it's the same thing, like, black people don't need to explain to white people, like, why they're affected by racism every single day. Like, there are, there are essays <laughs> you can go and read, like... what a definition is. Yeah.
1: Just educate yourself a little bit so that you can, I don't don't think it's too much to ask to let people, to have people, to expect people to get up to speed themselves. And also that's the sort of thing that like, if you're paying attention, you will understand it pretty quickly. It is really, I think a know it when I see it sort of situation where it's like, Oh, if you, you know, if you truly don't know what sexism is like, you're not paying attention. Yeah, (laughs) If you, If you truly read, you know, uh, an Amy Bender story and don't know what fabulism is, like, you're not doing it right. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's not a fair comparison, but I think... think... And
0: this is where we became militant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Became? I think we've been there.
0: (laughs) We're militant for the weird.
1: Militant, yeah, militant fabulists. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I'm ready. I might I might go change my social media handle.
0: <laughs> yeah, please <at> do.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this?
0: It's amazing, Kate Bernheimer. We love you.
1: We love you so much.
0: Didn't she say something at AWP about how she needed? She was thinking about working on other, like, follow up
1: essays. So, or did
0: I just like dream that?
1: That whole that whole encounter was sort of like it's blurred now.
0: Like, yeah. <laughs> well, it's because we were dealing with Kate Bernheimer at the same time as we were dealing with Katherine Davis mm-hmm. at the same time as we were dealing with all the amazing people on that panel and, like, yeah. just... Oh, and then it wasn't, like, Kelly Link sneaking out of the room. Yes. Like, there was... <laughs> I
1: was sitting, sitting, like, two rows behind Kelly Link having serious feelings.
0: Like, we were breathing Kelly Link's carbon dioxide. Oh my god, it's
1: cool. We can we can be cool. <laughs> We're
0: super and we can chill. Die having cats eat our hair. now
1: I mean it's the only way.
0: Oh my god. Okay, I think that is all. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, teach this essay to your students. I think it's really great. You know, they may have a little bit of some like, ah, it's scary because it's an essay, but I really think that it does provide them some groundwork for dealing with non-realist fiction. It's also just a really brilliant, accessible essay. I I
1: get it. Yeah. And I think also, as she kind of acknowledges, like, if you're trying to write this kind of fiction yourself, like, take heart. (laughs) Yeah. All is not lost. Yeah. Far from it. You can do it. So I heartily co-sign what Lindsay was recommending. And, uh, yeah, go read it. So this week, we don't have a first weird or weirdest read of all lined up for you. So we thought that we would just talk a little bit about some recommendations of weird stuff that we've been reading recently and that we're excited to to tell you about. Do you want to go first? Sure.
0: Um, So I started reading, actually, this kind of was a fortuitous absence of having somebody contribute because I started reading Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe and one thing oh. yeah I've never read it before and one thing that I've noticed in reading it is that there's a lot of fairy tale rhythm or like oral history rhythm and so it's mm. it's been really interesting to read it in light of thinking about and Heimer and how fairy tale tellings kind of pop up in surprising ways in literary fiction mm. so
1: that's been a lot of fun awesome because I feel like that's such a, like, classic of literature now, of like, contemporary literature, that, like, I wouldn't have expected that to have any weirdness in it. But I can totally see how, like, the voice of that could be kind of drawing on, like, traditional... Tools, I guess. Yeah,
0: there's this one part in particular. It's on, like, page 12 or something. It's pretty early on. It's just a little paragraph that's about the war medicine, so, like, war magic that this tribe has. Mm -hmm. And it's told in such a way it's got that, like, matter-of-factness to it and that there's... Mm -hmm that the war magic has come from the soul of this old woman with one leg who if you walk past this shrine too late on a too dark night you'll see this old woman's ghost like hopping around on one leg Yes. and just the way that yeah the way that it's told is, and there are lots of moments like that where it's kind of just like a paragraph or two of what feels like a fairy tale sprinkled in throughout this narrative
1: well and I think that's something that we've talked a little bit about before and that I really feel strongly is like weird is normal normal is weird yeah. you know like the what we think of is like oh it's so weird or like it's so magical like first of all there are people for whom magic is real and they be- you know they believe in the efficacy of of magic or witchcraft or you know uh folk medicine or whatever so like those magical things can be very real or like ghosts mm-hmm. like that that's real um for for a lot of people and then also like the idea that you're not just going to be like Maybe walking down a too dark lane one night and like see this one legged ghost lady, <laughs> like that. <laughs> that feels like like very plausible. Even if I don't like believe in ghosts, like the fact that that's a tradition and like a thing that you could be told by someone. Like of course that can crop up at any time. Like something can you know someone can creep you the fuck out at any moment. And the idea that like reality is so secure and insulated from weirdness is is kind of fake like it's an imaginary thing that we tell ourselves yeah totally i like that yeah nice <laughs> our new catchphrase um yeah that's my my dude bro this is a dude bro podcast about literature <laughs> nice Read dude
0: <laughs> the white male podcast oh my God.
1: it's like our it's like our nega cells oh, it's like opposite it world. yeah so what's yours? What are you? What's your weird thing that you're doing? <laughs> so I have a twofer, um, ooh, because I couldn't decide. And one of them is I can't. One of them I can't recommend because I haven't read it yet. Actually, I'm just kind of playing fast and loose here, all over the board. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing that I've I've been reading recently, and it's not the text is not really that weird, but I think it just sort of like fits into my. Like spooky lady aesthetic generally mm-hmm. is Margot Adler's drawing down the moon, which is sort of like a social it's not exactly anthropological, but it's like a social sort of exploration of witchcraft and Ooh. and neo-paganism and paganism. and so i I just started it pretty recently, so I'm not that far into it. It could turn out to be terrible, but so far it's been really good and like very respectful of people who are pagan. That's refreshing, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. hard to find. And so that's been... It's just kind of been fun to, to like... Kind of in the way that I was just talking about... Think about that, like, line between what's normal and what's sort of supernatural. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting... And I'm not going to quote it because I can't remember it off the top of my head. But she's talking in the beginning about, like, so what is witchcraft? What does it mean to do magic? And one of the definitions that she gets of magic from someone is, like, magic is basically just, like, the art and practice of getting results, basically. And I I really like that, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a super religious person, I'm not a super, like, mystical person, but I think the thing that appeals to me about about witchcraft is, like, it's a practice, Mm -hmm. you know, that there is, there is a religious side of paganism or what other religion that you can subscribe to, but... There's also just like this is the art of getting results, and this is the art of uh, like expressing your intention and stuff. So I'm kind of interested to see where this goes. It seems like so far it's kind of dated. It's from the '70s, so we'll see. But it, so far it's really good. And the other thing that I wanted to mention, kind of related to that, is that I just backed this comics anthology called Immortal Souls, the next queer witch comics anthology. Uh, it's on Kickstarter. I saw you tweeting about that. It looked amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited about it. It looks really good. Uh, and this is the second of the Power and Magic series. Uh, so this is all queer witches of color in this comic. Uh, and I cannot wait to get my copy of oh, it because it looks hella rad. That is so cool. Yeah. So that's, that's really, like I said, I, I haven't read it yet. So I, I can't say for sure that it'll be great. But it looks amazing. <laughs> Have you read the
0: first in the series?
1: no I haven't it's on my like I'm gonna get it this weekend and read it stay tuned future recommendation pending exactly (laughs) it just happened to come across my my feed on twitter and uh I was like these are all the things I want in life this is it this is all the stuff (laughs) so that looks good that looks or that sounds so good
0: all right we'll have to check it out to do like the graphic novel slash comics edition
1: I really... I think we should do an episode of, of graphic novels or comics. Yeah, or let's whatever, do it. Because there are a lot of yeah. super... Like, even comics... God, what was I doing? I was reading... So, I watch Riverdale, which is super... <laughs> um, it's it's delightful. It's so good. But it's, like, so soapy and trashy. My um, sister told
0: me to watch it because of Twin Peaks. And now I was, like, hesitant. Yes. And now
1: I'm Should I be hesitant? Yeah. Or should I watch it? Yeah. No, don't be hesitant at all. The only difference is that it doesn't have the, like supernatural element mm, to it really okay. which is kind of a bummer because I like I like the like Black Lodge oh stuff God. of Twin Peaks Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as we've talked about a lot it's like just a bunch of quirky weird people in a town solving a murder mystery in like very like kind of retro clothes and everything is very high drama all the time it's anyway uh why did I... oh so I... <laughs> I was like where did I even go <laughs>
0: bring us back bring us back
1: so I, we, I've i been watching Riverdale and my friend Michelle and I were talking about like this that, and the other thing about Riverdale and comics and we just kind of kept going back and forth about like what are the differences between these different universes and aren't you know comics so complex as anyone who reads comics knows like they get very like every iteration just gets more and more obscure kind mm-hmm. of and all the different universes and stuff and there's like there's a version of of Archie where like there's zombies, there's a there was a TV show in the 90s where like they solved supernatural mystery stuff, like like so, there's like aliens and things in it. It like there's just kind of every single detail you could imagine about an Archie comic is like weirder than anything you would expect.
0: <laughs> That's amazing, but it does speak to like yeah, how long something goes on and then
1: the kind of the spin-off worlds that emerge from that yeah exactly and the like the impressive sort of latitude that creators have been given to just be like oh sure want to turn Archie into a zombie go for it <laughs> yeah
0: oh well we should definitely yeah. do a comics episode then
1: yes mine will probably not be about zombie Archie but you never yeah, know yeah let's
0: not rule it out until we do
1: <laughs> okay so I think that's it for us this week we're kind of late so um, thanks for your patience I'll Twelve of you. You're The best twelve. Um, You're the only twelve. The best twelve. It's like the like the hateful eight or the, <laughs> the magnificent seven. Yeah. The weirdest twelve. The weirdest twelve of all. The weirdest twelve. <laughs> yeah. The weirdest twelve. Of all. That's not the melody at all. <laughs> Good enough for me. So yeah, I think that's all. You should definitely, if you are enjoying our weird ramblings about stuff, you should uh, rate. And review our podcast. Let us know. Give us a little sugar. And uh, and definitely subscribe to it, too, so that we know that you like it and you're listening. And it will get delivered directly to your podcast machine every time we update. It's the new future. It's beautiful. It's the old future. <laughs> <but yes. laughs> it's the really old future. <laughs> Uh, Yeah so do those things Follow us on Twitter We have show notes on readweird.com So you can if you like listen to the episode And are like wait was she talking about Zombie Archie at some point You can like go back and find a link to Find out what weird random nonsense You know uh, we were talking
0: about Or if you want to see some pictures of some uh, What are those things called Those slime
1: eels If you want to look up some slime eels (laughs) Yes some slime classic slime action. <laughs> so yeah, definitely check out our website. There's other articles and stuff. You should follow us on Twitter, because we're big weirdos over mm-hmm. there. Yeah, come hang out with us. Yeah. Join us. Yeah, one of us. <laughs> and our theme song
0: is Rosiste Day by El Zombie Flash. <laughs> Don't forget that. It is. <laughs> it is
1: indeed. Thank you. That's all, I think. Yay! Thanks for listening. Oh.